In early February 2019, staff with Our Children's Trust, the organization that supports the young people in the Juliana v. United States lawsuit, traveled to New York City with all 21 plaintiffs for a series of major press engagements. They included an interview with CBS's 60 Minutes and a photo shoot for Vogue magazine. With several organizations from the climate movement, Our Children's Trust hosted an event called Changing Tactics in the Face of Climate Emergency. The night opened with indigenous drumming and chanting and a prayer from George Stonefish, an indigenous elder and board member of the American Indian Community House. Respect and thanks that you do so now at this time in this moment the program's main event included a roundtable discussion with Julia Olson, co-counsel for the Juliana v. United States case, and Vic Barrett, a co-plaintiff and climate activist. They shared the stage with 350.org's communications manager, a co-founder of the Sunrise Movement, and other plaintiffs who told their stories. This is No Ordinary Lawsuit, a series about the constitutional climate change case Juliana v. United States. I'm your host, Ambar Espinosa. In this bonus episode, we offer an edited version of this roundtable discussion. There's a chair at the table for you, so let's listen. I'd first like to introduce our moderator. Mayan Cohen is the Director of Partnerships and Campaigns with ACE, the Alliance for Climate Education. ACE works nationally to educate and support youth advocacy around climate change. Through her work with ACE, Mayan has had the great fortune of partnering with many climate-focused groups and youth-focused groups and campaigns, many of which are often working towards the same ends but using different means. ACE is a long-held partner of OCTs, and I'm thrilled to turn the program over to Mayan. First, I'd like to welcome Thanu Yakupiti Yage to the stage. Uh, Thanu, heads, <laughs> Thanu heads U.S. Communications at 350.org. Next, I'd like to welcome Sarah Blasevich. She worked at the Divestment Student Network, training dozens of divestment campaigns across the U.S. and globally before going on to co-found Sunrise Movement. Sarah is a proud Croatian New Yorker and currently serves as Managing Director of Sunrise. Next, I'd like us to welcome Vic Barrett. Vic is one of the 21 youth plaintiffs that you just met uh, in the federal climate lawsuit, Juliana versus the US. And he is also a fellow with the Alliance for Climate Education that I work with. So I've been so honored to get to work with and learn with Vic for a lot of years now. So it's a special treat to get to have this discussion together today. And last, but certainly not least, let's give it up for Julia Olson. Uh, Julia, after graduating from the University of California, Hastings College of Law, with a doctorate in law in 1997, Julia worked for 15 years representing grassroots conservation groups in the West. When she became a mother, she realized that the greatest threat to her children was climate change. And she began focusing her work in the field um, and founded Our Children's Trust. Her work has led her to the intersection of human rights and environmental protection, and she is passionate about working for youth. 
Julia also teaches environmental courses as an adjunct instructor at the University of Oregon School of Law. So welcome, Julia. And so to start, I'm going to take a seat and join everyone, but we're going to give every panelist five minutes to speak a little bit more about their background and their work, and then we're going to uh, have some questions that all the panelists will have the opportunity to answer. Let's see if this, yes, this one works too. Uh, so let's start with Thanu. Uh, my name is Thanu. Uh, I run communications at 350.org. We're a global organization, um, and you know, Obviously, you've heard from our local groups, and like we work all across the world. Um, I've worked at 350 now for uh, almost two years, um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about why I um, started doing work on climate. I'm actually, first and foremost, an immigrant rights activist. I uh, am an immigrant. I'm from Sri Lanka, um, an island that is being impacted by climate change. Um, and one of the reasons why I, I, I took shifted to doing climate work is actually because I think that immigrant rights work and climate justice work are one and the same. Um, and just to give you some like particular st statistics, like, and we all know like those most impacted by climate change um, have had the least to do with the problem when it comes to you know, extraction, when it comes to the fossil fuel industry, when it comes to Western colonial countries that have perpetuated this problem, that have led to people of color, communities of color, indigenous people from all around the world having to uproot their homes and their livelihoods because of a crisis that was created by the fossil fuel industry and by Western governments. As an example of um, one of the ways in which I think that we need to change the way we talk about climate, for example, I hear a lot of people talk about how climate is um, a national security crisis. Do not say that. In the US, when people say, um, well, even the Pentagon believes in climate change, cl climate change is a national security threat. What they mean is we understand that climate change is going to be a threat because black and brown people want entry into our country. And because of militarism, because of, the, of borders, um, the way in which we think about the kind of climate policy that we want to create has to think about migrant rights, about indigenous rights, about frontline communities at the forefront, and it has to be crafted by the folks from those communities. Um, and so I very much pushed for 350, um, and organizations in general to not talk about climate in that way, to talk about it in a multiracial, intersectional way, because otherwise we fall into these right-wing traps that we don't want to be in. And so Sarah, please go ahead and introduce yourself, share a little bit more about your background and about some of the work that you've been doing. Awesome, thank you. I thought I would just share my story briefly. Um, I actually grew up a couple blocks away from here. Uh, but my dad is an immigrant from Croatia, so I spent every summer of my childhood playing on the banks of the River Dobra in my grandma's 85-person uh, village in Croatia. And during my junior year of college, a thousand-year storm hit the Balkans and swept through Croatia and Bosnia and Serbia. And I watched from my dorm room as families that looked like mine stood on rooftops that looked like mine as the floodwaters just rose and rose and rose and swept hundreds of thousands of people's homes away. 
And even though I had been involved in the fossil fuel divestment movement for a few years already, it was the first time in my life that I felt how quickly um, the only place in the world where I felt a sense of really having roots could just be wiped away. And I realized that I had a choice between whether I, uh, I would sit back and just watch as people, including my people, drown and burn and lose their homes and lives and livelihoods to this crisis, or whether I would stand up and fight the fossil fuel billionaires and the corrupt politicians who are fueling those floods and fires and droughts around the world. So a few years later, I decided to co-found Sunrise with, uh, with some friends of mine. And Sunrise started because um, we had all been working in different parts of the youth climate movement and um, all feeling like, in spite of seeing important victories in a lot of places, it wasn't adding up. Um, it felt like the hurricanes were getting bigger every year and the movement was not. And so we came together around a shared understanding that what we need to stop climate change is a massive government-led transformation of our entire economy and our society. So we launched and in 2018 we ran a 75-person organizing fellowship where we placed 75 young people in movement houses um, all across the country, including here in New York, and uh, worked on important political races and work to elect leaders who would stand up for our health and well-being, to unseat politicians in bed with the fossil fuel industry, and to build significant organizing skills in the process. And we saw some incredible successes here in New York. We helped provide the margin of victory for two, uh, two candidates who were running against the um, members of the Independent Democratic Caucus Conference, the IDC. So we helped elect um, Zelnor and Biagi to the state Senate and uh, pave the way to actually pass the Climate and Community Protection Act here in New York. And yeah. <laughs> and, um, and the program ended on election day and exactly one week later, Sunrise descended en masse on DC where we sat in at Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office, along with Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, and demanded that the Democratic Party leadership back a Green New Deal or step aside. And, um, So, you know, we had just spent six months hustling, day in and day out, not only our 75 fellows, but hundreds of volunteers across the country to win back the House for Democrats, and we thought that they owed us more than lip service on the biggest issue facing our generation, which was why we launched our demand for a Green New Deal and why we've been fighting every day for the you know, two and a half months since then to make a Green New Deal real. Vic, would love for you to share a little bit about your background and some of the work that you're doing right now. Yeah, uh, for sure. So um, my name is Vic, I'm 19 years old. Uh, and I got involved in the climate movement in my freshman year of high school. Uh, these, this nonprofit organization came to my freshman global history class. Uh, it was called Global Kids. I went to the first meeting for the Human Rights Activist Project. Uh, I wanted to get engaged in what was happening in my new community. I just started going to school in New York City and uh, I wanted to see what was up and what was going on. 
and I just learned about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And um, as I was learning about that, I was like, wow, you know, this is a smart document, it's making sense. <laughs> and um, as we kept learning about it, they also bought in the issue of climate change and talked about the fact that throughout the year, that would be the campaign we were working on. And um, at first I was like, climate change, what does this have to do with human rights? Uh, what does this have to do with anything? <laughs> and then as I started learning about, um, you know, thinking about myself and my own identities and thinking about living in New York and witnessing the destruction of Hurricane Sandy and how that impacted my life and thinking about being a first-generation Honduran American with a lot of love in my culture and where I am from and who I am and knowing that climate change critically endangered that and not only critically endangered that but did it in such an unfair, unjust way considering that I knew that my people couldn't have contributed to the issue the way that my government was. Um, and as I started doing more work in the movement, I joined the Alliance for Climate Education my sophomore year of high school. Um, and I was going there every week after school and we were working on a campaign to mandate climate education in New York City public schools, K through 12, because we found, me and my friends were like, well, if we want to get other people engaged in climate change, especially our peers, they need to learn about it for more than six hours on average <laughs> um, in the United States. So working on that campaign was really hard as a young person, especially being not able to vote and having to appeal to so many city council members and legislators who really do their jobs for the vote at the end of the day. And just seeing how easy it was for them to ignore us just upfront because we weren't voting for them, but the fact that we were still their constituents, I was finding myself really frustrated in the political process and what we were supposed to do. Um, and then this, you know, amazing thing, fellow of this guy that's Our Children's Trust, and uh, they approached me and talked about this idea of going the judicial route. And, you know, I was like, I've jumped in on too many council members' Christmas parties and, you know, have too many council members who hate me now because, you know, we harassed them to sign a bill. And um, this idea that instead of me having to beg my politicians to care about me, you know, we could just sue them. <laughs> that sounded great. <laughs> um, um, so that's uh, how I got involved, and that's what we did. And it's been an amazing roller coaster since then. I was 16 years old, and uh, going into my junior year of high school, um, now I'm 19 and I'm a sophomore in college, and the amount of opportunities that have happened in between then, um, this lawsuit has created such an amazing platform for young people like me who maybe wouldn't have had the access or the capability to speak to such large groups of people about issues that we genuinely care about. It really opened that up a lot for me, um, being able to go to COP21 with my aunt, actually. It was just me and my aunt in Paris for two weeks. I was the only uh, A student that went, and she was really patient with all my teen angst and everything, but it was great. Um, and then we, I got to go there and see how these processes worked, and then um, I got to speak at the UN General Assembly and tell them why young people cared so much about climate change and sustainable development. Uh, and then most recently getting to go to COP24 with the Sustainist delegation and really bring civil society and youth voices into the space and um, getting to interrupt the fossil fuel panel that the Trump administration sent. It's been a really amazing growth process in my activism, even though like for the whole time it's been for the same goal, you know, to make a sustainable future where you know, my generation can continue to thrive and live. It uh, manifests itself in many ways throughout my life, whether like working really within the system or interrupting the system. Uh, I found a lot of um, 
ways to enjoy this work even though it's hard. And uh, yeah, that's how I got to where I am now. I hope that made sense. <laughs> but, yeah. I'm Julia. I'm slightly under the weather, so I hope my voice holds up. Um, so I founded our Children's Trust in 2010, and the reason was I was a mom, and I had two young boys and two stepdaughters, and we started the organization because what we wanted to do was create a coordinated legal campaign to get a bunch of attorneys together representing a bunch of young people and sue all these governments across the country, every state and the federal government, and then take it global. <clears throat> so when I look back at all the important social justice movements in history, when Brown versus Board of Education happened, 1954, and I'm just gonna segue for one moment because I really love this story and people don't know it and you should. There was a woman an African-American woman in 1944, her name is Polly Murray, and she was at Howard Law School, and she was the only woman in her class, and she got in an argument with all the men in that class about her theory that they should challenge the separate part of separate but equal in Plessy versus Ferguson, which was the case that said segregation was legal in our country. And she came up with that theory that Thurgood Marshall then used to win Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. And yeah, so you should learn about this woman. She's amazing. And at that time, only 30% of people in this country supported desegregation. And it was the Supreme Court stepping in ahead of politics and saying this is unjust. Now we're in a point today where the majority of people in our country, thanks to movements like 350.org and Sunrise and other amazing movement builders, most people want action on climate change. But the political branches for 50 years have known, and this is the key thing about the work that we do, for 50 years, our government has known that if we continued to burn fossil fuels, it would cause catastrophic consequences for all of you. They knew sea level rise would happen, ocean acidification, storms, fires, they knew all of it in 1965 in a report out of Lyndon B. Johnson's White House. And they knew it every decade after that. And yet with that knowledge, they decided to still poison the atmosphere and keep us locked into a fossil fuel energy system, which is unjust and predominantly hurting the poorest communities and communities of color and people who are disadvantaged, but ultimately hurting all of us in the way we live and in the way we come together as community. So what we do is we help young people sue their governments <laughs> to get the courts involved in this conversation because they haven't been involved in what are our fundamental rights. And this system of fossil fuel energy needs to be declared unconstitutional. And what we do very much relates to the street movement and the election and legislative movement. And so we can talk more about that as we go. And so before we move on to some questions for, for everyone to answer, uh, Julia, it would be great if you could share a little update about where the case is at right now. And also, uh, I was going to say if, but how about when you win? What does that mean? What does it look like? So we were supposed to be in trial on October 29th after beating the government and the fossil fuel industry who were interveners in the case. 
and having the right to go forward to present the evidence and having the plaintiffs testify and having their experts testify before a judge. And then 10 days before trial, Chief Justice John Roberts stayed our case. And, and then a few days after that, lifted the stay. So we were clear to go back to court. And then the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals intervened. <clears throat> so for young people who aren't as familiar with the judicial system, we have the trial court, which is the district court, the Court of Appeals, and then the Supreme Court. So right now we're at the Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit. They're going to review the decisions that have been made by our trial judge. Her name is Ann Aiken. And then we're hoping to get back to the trial court. We may have to detour up to the Supreme Court. But when we win, and um, we believe we will win, what will happen... <laughs> and we, we've beat them every step of the way so far, so we're in good shape. So what will happen is the court will order the government to prepare a plan to decarbonize the U.S. energy system and start drawing down carbon. And we're looking at a science-based plan, so one that gets us off of fossil fuels by 2050, um, very steep reductions in emissions, and you know, transitioning to clean energy. And it would be a plan that the court would oversee but it's really, it's again, bringing our energy system into constitutional compliance. So that's a way to think of it. Thank you. All right, so I'd love to ask a question that everyone could answer, um, but you don't have to, uh, but I'll let whoever feels like they're, they really just can't wait to answer it, to answer first. And so, if you could share a little bit about what's your theory of how big social change happens and are the strategies that you're using or the organizations that you're working with are using, are they adequate to meet the urgency and scale of the climate crisis? Anyone eager to go first? <laughs> so I can talk about my theory of change is really that we need to be working in all three branches of government, but that our political branches have really failed. So our hope is that by having people in the streets, we're supporting people in the streets, by going to the courts, by holding the political branches accountable, and you know, allowing like the Sunrise Movement to put forward legislation for the Green New Deal that's ready when legislators are forced to act, because the courts have said you can't continue down this path anymore. And so it's really, it's all of it. It's, it's what they did in the civil rights movement. You know, we have to be in the streets, the courts, Congress, the executive, we have to be everywhere and as powerfully as we can. Yeah, I would, I would definitely add to that. Uh, I agree that it, it does have to be, yep, got you. Uh, I would agree that it does have to be everything. Um, we, we have to be doing everything that we can and we have to be using as many strategies as we can and I think that's reflective of how intersectional of an issue this is as we talked about before and how many issues that this, that climate change encompasses and how many issues that climate change perpetuates. So I think that really zeroing in on the idea of not just talking about emissions, talking about the people that are being impacted on the ground and the livelihoods and telling the stories, I think that's what's really important when we're talking about the issue because we, we could say all the numbers and science we want, but we all know that there's gonna be people who just shut off. <laughs> but it's harder to shut off when you're really talking about 
humanity when you're talking about something that everyone has in them. And um, yeah, that's what I would say. Thank you. Yeah, I, I feel like I, I shared a bit already, but to kind of recap, I think the Sunrise's theory of change has three prongs, building people power, building political power, and aligning a diverse array of political and social groups and forces around a shared agenda for society. Um, that includes building a new consensus that we need a government that actually works for, for the people and serves the common good. And I think the, the bit that I just want to hammer home that I know for me was um, actually a new way of thinking that came after Trump got elected in 2016, is that there, there is no stopping climate change without seriously contending with what it will take to win and hold governing power in this country. And I just want to be really clear about that. Like, I think, yeah, I, I think the United States is the country globally most responsible for this crisis. We have the greatest responsibility in, to intervene in it. And, um, and we have uh, a tremendous amount of power at our disposal, but we got we to gotta grab it. So that's the theory of change. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I would agree. I think it takes everything. You know, I had this like interesting conversation two days ago in a, in a cab ride in Brooklyn with this like Chinese immigrant cab driver where we were talking about the vortex and he was like, yeah, you know, climate change, what are we gonna do? It's a conversation that people are having on the daily. Like, you know, it's the majority of Americans, like from US citizens to immigrants, we, they, everyone knows that climate change is happening. They just don't know what to, some people don't know what to do about it. And so it's really about like, how do we, how do we get to that mass scale movement that we want? And I do think it's gonna take everything. I think that like the next two years are extremely critical. I think that we have the opportunity to make climate change like among the top three issues in the presidential elections. Um, it should be climate, immigration, and economic justice. Those are the three top issues, and they're in combination with each other. Um, and I think that what Sunrise is doing in terms of like, you know, like making sure that there's hundreds of young people like, you know, flooding offices, what like um, our Children's Trust is doing, what like 350 and People's Climate Movement are doing in terms of flooding the streets, like it's gonna be a combination of these things that like help us move, move these politicians on climate. Um, you know, like school walkouts, like what Greta is doing in Europe, for example, like we need to do that across the US. Like people really want to get engaged. And um, I think that we have the opportunity to engage them when we shift the way in which we talk about this. Thank you. And so I think we've touched upon pieces of this, but if you could summarize, what does it look like to actually win? on climate justice right now? Uh, wow, that's hard. <laughs> it's a big uh, question. <laughs> <laughs> I would, what does it look like to win um, in terms of, yep, yeah. What does it look like in to win in terms of uh, climate justice? I would say that right now, with the way that the movement's working and the way that politics works and the way things work, that the, to me, what it looks like for a climate justice movement to be winning is that one that it's led by the people that are being impacted by the issue and that it's that the people on the forefront of the issue are the ones who are bringing who are leading the agenda and bringing the agenda into the 
decision makers' hands. I think that's the most important part of it because we have a lot, especially in the climate movement, there's a lot of history of um, people speaking for people that they shouldn't be <laughs> when those people are completely able to speak for themselves. Um, and I think that, <laughs> and I think that a win looks like the people who have built up the resilience against these issues and have the urgency in their hearts to fight these issues, I think a win looks like them taking the lead. I just think that there's a, a lot of uh, narrative grabbing and especially in the climate movement. And since I've gotten, I've joined of a lot of, uh, you know, privileged white, young, college educated students hopping into the movement and being like, you know, we're gonna pick this black person and this indigenous person, and then we got a young person, native person. It's like, yeah, we built a movement and a campaign. <laughs> and that's just uh, not what it is. And I think once we flip that on its head, I think that um, that's what a win looks like, for sure. Thank you. I love that vision of a win, but does anyone else want to uh, share their perspective? We've lived for you know my whole life and for a few decades before that, the common sense in our country has been set by Reaganomics and by a politics that says that we need a small government, we need to deregulate everything and um, associates well, the welfare state and social safety nets with poor people of color and stigmatizes them to turn people against each other. And um, that's, that's like the water that we're swimming in. And that's created this context where all of these defining issues of our time, um, the economy, immigration, climate, um, are all held back by a, uh, by, um, an inability of our government to enact sweeping transformative changes. So when I think about what victory looks like for Sunrise, it's, uh, you know, in tandem with winning a Green New Deal, we actually have to transform society's common sense to, um, to one in which we believe that our government actually exists to serve us and to work for the common good and to work for the health and well-being of the most marginalized and um, struggling people in this country. And until we do that, we're not gonna win a Green New Deal, but we're also not gonna win on all of these other issues, on Medicare for all, on immigration, on, um, yeah, on all these intersecting crises. So I think that's why we talk about the political alignment in Sunrise's theory of change, because we know that, um, that in order to win, we do have to change those basic values in this country, and we do have to make it impossible for politicians to run on this outdated, <laughs> antiquated, racist view of what government should be and who it should serve. Thank you. I just wanna take a moment to acknowledge that in asking the question, what does it look like to win on climate change? I think there's something inherent in all the answers that you each shared and I'm also thinking about um, when it comes to climate change, we've already lost so much um, and every day that we haven't reached these transformational changes, we are losing. We're losing lives, we're losing land and forests, um, we're losing uh, species at a scale that we, we haven't seen in human history. Um, and, and we're losing things that we love, people and places that we love. Um, and so to me, uh, being in this space right now, what gives me hope is I think everyone here is simultaneously holding what we love and what we've lost 
in one hand. And to me, that's what hope is around climate change, is being able to come to terms with that we've already lost things that we love because of climate change. And at the same time, there's still so much potential for transformation and creating a future that we want to live in and that generations to come can thrive in. Um, and so I appreciate all of your answers around what it looks like to win. All right, I have a number of pieces of paper here <laughs> with some fantastic questions from the audience. So one is specifically for, for you, Julia, and Vic. Uh, what specific constitutional rights are being threatened right now? The case is brought under the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which protects your right to life, liberty, and property. And so the rights that were claiming are being violated, that are in fact being violated, are the plaintiff's rights to life, to personal security, which is one of your liberty rights, to family autonomy, which is one of your liberty rights, to a climate system capable of sustaining life, which the federal judge in Oregon has recognized as a newly identified right under the Fifth Amendment. And yeah, it was very exciting. And then there's also claims about the public trust obligation of government to protect our survival resources for us and for future generations. And there's an equal protection claim. So the argument there is that children are a class of people who are being discriminated against in the government's conduct. Uh, <clears throat> And, and they're being discriminated against in, um, there are actually these policies that our government imposes called discounting, where it does an economic analysis and, and attributes a lower value to a life like 20 years from now than a life today. And so that forms the basis of a lot of decisions that our government makes. So there's affirmative discrimination and uh, leaving young people with a world that we don't want them to inherit. So those are the basic claims under the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Thank you. Okay, this is another question from the audience for the entire panel or whoever feels called to answer to it. It says, climate emergency disproportionately affects poor and communities of color. To make climate activism as broad a movement as possible, do you think we should strive for bipartisanship by using universal language rather than risk further polarization around climate, the climate issue? I don't think striving for bipartisanship and using universal language are the same thing. So Sunrise has uh, worked really hard to um, actually talk about climate change in a way that is not partisan, it impacts poor people, it impacts working people, it impacts people of color, and it impacts young people, it impacts all kinds of people. Um, and the people who are responsible for the climate crisis are not, you know, the voting base of the Republican Party, it's a small handful of wealthy elites who have been profiting off of this crisis for decades. And that is an important message to say, this isn't about like Republicans getting us into this mess, lots of Republicans are going are suffering already greatly <laughs> um, from climate impacts, but it's about naming a very narrow and specific enemy of the GOP elite, which is mostly wealthy white men who have been profiting from this crisis for decades. 
Um, so I think naming very clearly who our enemy is and making it as narrow as possible allows us to build a movement as broad as possible. And I do hope and I do believe that lots of people, regardless of who they voted for in the last election or in the last couple elections, um, will support something like a Green New Deal when they hear about it because people want jobs and people want clean water and people want clean air and people know that their lives depend on, um, on the government actually fighting for those things. Uh, the American people are not stupid. So um, I think that that's, that's kind of, you know, what I believe about how we should communicate about the crisis and who's responsible for it and how the solutions will play out. Um, you know, how that, how that interacts with what the strategy in Congress is around who we're trying to organize or who backs the bill or who champions the bill. Um, that's a whole nother conversation. And to be clear, the Republican Party has been largely bought out by the fossil fuel elites. And I am not currently that hopeful that too many Republican politicians are gonna come out in the next year as champions of a Green New Deal because their campaign donations depend on them not doing that. Um, but that doesn't mean their base is gonna support them for it. And that doesn't mean that their base can't come out and, um, and, and support this. And I actually do think that a Green New Deal and that, that you know, policies and putting forward a policy vision like this is a hugely winning strategy for the Democratic Party in the United States because it broadens the coalition of people who see themselves, um, who see themselves being backed by Democratic politicians. So that's part of our strategy in the next year is actually inviting politicians from all sides of the aisle to come out and back a Green New Deal and to back a plan to save our generation from catastrophe and making it really clear to the American people which side their politicians are on. Yeah. I just have a slightly different take on bipartisan responsibility and it's because of the evidence in the case. Um, it's been both Democrats and Republicans throughout our history that have caused this problem. Like the Democrats are not off the hook. And in fact, uh, President Obama made us the number one oil and gas producer in the world under his administration. And we sued Obama in this case and then Trump became um, the defendant after that. So in terms of responsibility for causing the problem, it's been a bipartisan effort to keep us in the fossil fuel energy system and I hope it will become a bipartisan effort to bring us out of that system. Thank you all. Um, so this next question actually is, is for you, Julia, from the audience. What are the main legal arguments being used in this court case and how are you appealing to the deciding justices to convince them? Yeah, what are the main legal arguments? That's a really big question. I know we're um, almost out of time, but we've built this case from the very beginning to appeal to a conservative ideology and a more liberal one. And so it really speaks to um, both ends of the spectrum of constitutional jurisprudence. And so one example is if you think about Justice Scalia was sort of the epitome of this original intent analysis that you might be familiar with. And so some justices will look to the founders of the nation and well, what did they intend by these words? So in 1818, James Madison, when he left the presidency, he gave a speech 
And he said, the atmosphere is the breath of life without which we all perish. In 1818, and he was talking about climate change from mass deforestation. And so we can actually go to the roots of our nation's history and make a story and a case about our founders intending to protect our soils and our air and our water for justices who subscribe to that view. And we can tell the story of a living constitution that needs to evolve and respond to the crises of today and make that argument as well. And so we draw on a lot of jurisprudence going back over 100 years. Um, there's really strong precedent for this case. It's not totally wacky, like some people might say. It's really grounded in our nation's history. So first, I just want to give a huge thank you to this amazing, powerful, group of panelists. Um, can we give them a huge round of applause? <laughs> Thank you. And I'd also like to invite the 20 other, other than Vic, youth plaintiffs back onto the stage. And if you could stand right behind the panelists, that would be great. Come on back up. Ah, oh, the stage feels so much better now. <laughs> um, so there are uh, a couple questions from the audience for, for the plaintiffs. Um, and yeah, just take volunteers uh, who are interested in answering a couple of these questions. So this first question is, um, says, I currently go to college and a lot of my classmates are apathetic about the climate crisis largely because they are worried about getting employed and not about much else. How do I shift that sort of culture and encourage a climate positive environment with my peers? Um, so I'm, my name is Kieran Uman, by the way, I'm one of the plaintiffs, I'm 22, I'm also in college right now. Um, and I've done a lot of organizing work, both with kind of like college sort of oriented stuff such as a divestment movement, but also like larger scale, like organizing college students to go out and fight against um, fossil fuel infrastructure um, and you know support other direct action efforts. And in my experience, what I would suggest to this person is to ask what, what their peers are passionate about, what they do care about. Because um, I've had experiences organizing where you know my passion perhaps is focused more on on you know nature or like you know environmentalism, but somebody else is like really passionate about immigrant justice um, because perhaps they're undocumented themselves. But then when they make the connection between and see how like Tano was talking about before, when they make the connection, then they realize that we're all, we're all in the same fight together. So I would say. Don't focus on their apathy, focus on their passion, because I think everybody has a potential to have passion. Thank you. The next question, what do you think are the strengths of this generation, your generation, that help with the fight against climate change? So there are a couple of things that I think people are just starting to realize. One is that our generation is enormous. The, the millennials and Generation Z uh, together are one of the largest uh, demographics in US history. Um, and we are just, we are not yet 
uh, voting at the same rates that our, that our parents are, but we are voting at higher rates than our parents did at our age. Young people, I think, actually hold tremendous power uh, and influence to really be able to shift uh, the, the political discussion. And I think that, that what, what Sunrise is doing is incredibly important in terms of really uh, put, you know, or mobilizing and organizing young people. But I would predict that there is a tidal wave uh, coming in maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but in the next, over the next 10, 15 to 20 years where young people of today really are going to be setting the agenda just simply as a result of our just sheer numbers. Awesome. Thank you. All right. This is a very serious political strategic question. No, just kidding. This is actually a, a really personal question and a very important one because I know you all do so much. And so this question from the audience is, how do all of you, the young people, balance school attendance and other school commitments with the lawsuit? Like, it's kind of weird because when I tell my teachers like, oh, I'm going out of town, for the climate lawsuit stuff. And they always act like they forget that I'm in the lawsuit. That's, so that's kind of awkward. Um, because I'm like, I'm in that climate lawsuit. And they're like, what lawsuit? Like I did something wrong, but. So I'm in eighth grade at a school that Sahara just graduated from. And I've been there since second grade. So I know my teachers very well and uh, they're very forgiving and very helpful. Um, I don't know, like I, I really, I do love this case and I'm t gonna be a part of it until the very end. But I also feel like we shouldn't have to do this. And so a little part of me is like, I don't wanna do this interview, I wanna go be a kid. And then I almost always end up choosing the interview, but like there is definitely that part of me that's like, but why do I need to do this, you know? So, yeah. Thank you all so much. Can we give them a huge round of applause and lots of love? You're listening to No Ordinary Lawsuit, Thank you. a production of the nonprofit Our Children's Trust. Stay with us as we continue to tell the story of Juliana v. United States. For this special episode, we'd like to thank the Roundtable sponsors, the New York Society for Ethical Culture, and 350.org. Devin Gallagher, Caitlin Howard, Meg Ward and I produce this podcast. Cheryl Duvall is our editor. Seth Augustus Quitner composes our music. Please consider reviewing us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can learn more on our website, noordinarylawsuit.org. I'm Ambar Espinosa. Thanks for listening. <laughs>